Section 1 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. The Influence of Monarchs, Chapter 1. Introductory. No subject of speculation lies more in odium, confusion, and neglect than the philosophy of history, and yet no questions arouse more heated discussion than those concerning the causes of human action or the reasons for a nation's fate. Here every one speaks with the utmost assurance, and the same man who would contend that the record of history is unique, and that the human drama has been too complicated ever to be interpreted into a science, is the first to advance his cause as the cause, and the last to see the many alternatives which indeed do inhere and are the warp and woof of his complexity. It is more than two thousand years since the saying, the proper study of mankind is man, was accepted as a safe remark, and in its passage through the ages, this oft-quoted phrase has not been seriously contradicted. If then man is apparently interested in his own welfare, beyond the concrete needs of the hour, and does, for some reason, crave a rational account of why some succeed and others fail, he will always in some way turn to the records of the past. Even if his desires be entirely utilitarian, he cannot avoid it. His knowledge of the past may not be more than the records written in his own brain, impressions of his contact with his fellow men. They may not be reinforced by memories of what he has read beyond the vague impressions gained from the daily press. Yet in the formation of his judgments, he has used the human record. He has been obliged to weigh probabilities and not certainties and measure men in terms of a standard which has come to him as a composite resultant. If then man takes recourse, nolens volens, to records of the past, how much more wisely in the game of life the play must unfold under the hand of the person who remembers what he has read as well as what he has seen. And if to the usual reading of history and biography some scheme can be devised which can compel that printed record to divulge even a fraction of its deep meanings, then by so much the knowledge of mankind for mankind will progress. There is a fascinating interest in explaining the decline of the great civilizations of the past, and there is always much that is superficial in such explanations, from the failure to take into account causes of growth which acted prior to the beginning of the decline, factors which are at one time present but were afterwards withdrawn, and no factor of such a character is more important than the dynastic factor, and indeed the whole aristocratic element of which royalty is but the top and crown, because Egypt, Greece, Rome, the Italian cities, Spain, and Portugal all declined. There is no reason why other nations should follow in the same track. The new western nations may be built upon entirely different foundations. They may have been evolved in such a way that great masses of people have become elevated and able to govern themselves whereas the earlier civilizations may have been dependent for their life and growth on a very few people who formed an aristocratic class far superior to the masses whom they governed. A knowledge of the relative intellectual differences between royalty and nobility and commoners becomes, therefore, a desideratum for each nation each age. The present research makes a beginning towards such an appreciation of class differences. No historian will deny that monarchs have had at least some importance in moulding the course of ancient, medieval and modern history. No complicated 
and exhaustive research like the present is needed to arrive at an agreement on this point. But as soon as one asks how much, when, and where, the answers can be given only by systematic comparisons and quantitative tests. There are several reasons why an accurate knowledge of the personal influence of sovereigns is among the first desiderata in the true science of historical interpretation. And not the least significant among these reasons is the fact that in some countries, and especially with modern times, this factor becomes reduced to a minimum. By indicating all the points at which regal influence has been at its maximum, one at the same time marks out those periods when the same factor has had little importance, and these periods, once isolated, may well become the objects of further investigation. One can see if these democratic or anti-monarchical periods have elements common to all, or if they can be put in any way classified or better understood. If the monarchs themselves have had great weight in directing the course of history, how did they get this importance? How did they utilise it? How and when did they lose it? These become historical questions of unsurpassed interest. The present book will have something to say as to the first and last of these queries, the origin and decline of royal power, but its chief concern will be to describe the uses which these privileged persons have made their exceptional positions, or more exactly, the personal influences of monarchs on political and economic history. This research will be almost entirely objective, and will at the start make no assumptions whatsoever, unless it be an assumption that a book is a book, and a printed word is a printed word. It is important to note that I do not assume that any book tells the truth, or that any statement is correct. While a statement in a book of history need not be a fact, it is at least a fact that the book says so. And as with such facts that I begin, in collecting the printed statements of history, I am just as much dealing with objectivity and reality as if I were picking up pebbles on a beach. I have made a rearrangement of historical statements under a new classification, and am ready to show that when such a rearrangement is made, then certain conclusions follow as the most probable interpretation of the observations. The next step in the process will be readily granted. Whatever one may think of kings as a whole, some kings have certainly been more able than others. It is also a fact that the amount of admiration shown by historians for the intellectuality of some kings is greater than for others. It is also a fact that some periods of national history are more generally recognised as progressive than others. We are therefore justified in attempting to express these differences by means of common methods of classification. Of all methods of classification, the threefold is the commonest and the most promising. We do not commonly find that men are either good or bad, or all men can be divided into two classes, the successful and the unsuccessful. What we do see, on every hand, is that out of large groups, some few stand out as distinctly superior, some few as distinctly deficient, and between the two, a mediocre class, which bands gradually into the two extremes. If any large group of kings be divided into three classes, and the names pigeonholed as superior, inferior, and doubtful, according to reputed ability, a fair proportion will fall inevitably into the superior, or inevitably into the inferior category, no matter who makes the classification. The point is that, comparing them with each other, some must go to these extreme classes, as there are sure to be some who stand out from the average. The middle grade may then be reserved for those who do not easily fall into one of the two extreme classes. Following the threefold method, I have graded each ruler in one of three classes, except 
where information seemed too meagre. The symbols plus and plus or minus and minus are placed to the left of each name in the tables found in the appendix. They refer to three grades of rating for intellectual qualities. Moral traits are, as far as possible, left out of consideration while making up the classification for intellect. The reader may wonder if it is possible sharply to separate intellectual from moral attributes. Without going into the psychology of the question, and considering that there is a border line in which these two commonly employed terms blend and become indistinguishable, it is nevertheless undeniable that for everyday purposes we all do classify and distinguish between goodness and brilliancy, wickedness and stupidity. Experience proves that it is usually easy to place adjectives qualifying psychic differences either into the class called mental or the class called moral. By looking over the summaries for the characteristics of rulers, one can see that only a few of the adjectives employed fail to fit one or the other of these arbitrary psychic categories. The words courage, bravery, and perseverance seem to divide their significance. I have let these words carry a particular weight. I have not followed any mechanical or objective scheme in weighing the value of adjectives, not because of any inherent difficulty, but simply because it is not necessary for the purpose of my conclusions. Indeed, even by the dictates of strict science, I am not beholden to describe any part of the method by which I have attributed these summaries under the parallel columns, ruler, and conditions of country. These tabular columns are formed of 736 elements, or miniature histories. 368 of these are descriptions of the chief economic and political changes during the years of 368 different monarchs, regions, or other rulers, royal or non-royal. The 368 elements which form the left-hand columns are my own descriptions of the traits of character of the rulers, formed, it is true, out of materials collected in a systematic way, but presentable, as they stand, without the need of further justification. It is only necessary that each of these separate elements, condition of country, and the characteristics of ruler, shall be sufficiently accurate to be assigned rightly to its proper grade. As there are only three grades, and the doubtful cases are allotted in a way to give the benefit of the doubt to an opponent of the conclusions, my position in the matter is a very safe one, and the assignment of grades becomes very easy. That is, on presenting the elements, with their grade symbols attached, I am ready to ask, who will challenge more than a very small percent of these assignments? If most of the elements go unchallenged and are accepted, then any conclusion afterwards made must be accepted, providing a subsequent reasoning be correct. That is to say, I start fresh from a new position. This is one way of developing the thesis. Those qualified as specialists on the history of the various countries will, I hope, pass a sufficiently favourable verdict upon the judgments I have made to allow the data to serve as a basis for the amplification. The unfavourable critic must remember that it is not sufficient to indicate places where my own judgments fail to correspond to his own historical opinions. He must, if he discredits the value of the research as a whole, show that the errors which I have made tend falsely and improperly to favour subsequent conditions. If, for instance, a ruler whom I have graded as minus is, in his opinion, plus, unless the great symbol which I have made for the conditions is also minus, it would not lessen the weight of my conclusions if the symbol marked for the ruler were changed. Suppose the conditions were plus, then it would actually strengthen my conclusion to raise the grading of the ruler. If conditions were plus or minus, then it would not make any difference one way or the other 
whether the ruler were in grade minus or grade plus, as each of the extreme grades is at an equal distance from the medium grade. So, from the standpoint of strict logic, I must hold myself entirely aloof from mentioning any authorities and say, these statements about historical characters and historical events are so well known and agreed upon that any justification is unnecessary, or even if they are not entirely so, the remark applies to a sufficiently large percentage of the statements, and I will rest on this. It may be worth while, however, for some purposes, to give an account of the method used in making up the grades and tabulations. Such details have a technical interest and may be serviceable later on. It has been my aim to rely on the usual or standard authorities, histories which are well known and cover a considerable portion of the life of the nation. These are perhaps just as useful and reliable in this particular research as a large collection of special monographs. I have purposely omitted biographies of individual sovereigns and special works on short periods, because first would take a much longer time to complete such research, and even then it is a question if the advantages would outweigh the disadvantages. It is presumable that special histories are more correct in recording facts and details, but it is not likely that the historian who has dealt with only a short period of time with the biography of a single ruler will have a good judgment of comparative values. Changes in national welfare degrees of difference among royalty as one whose field has been more extensive. Some might suppose that in looking at material of this sort, biographical, political, and economic, one would find many disagreements and expressions of opinion, but this is not so. Historians may and do disagree upon minor points, but not often upon essentials. This is one of the facts that I have already found to be certainly true as regards individuals, and the whole material of this work shows that this statement is equally true for political and economic conditions. Sometimes the more detailed histories have also been consulted and according to the following plan. Usually such specialised works are necessary. A sufficiently clear idea can be gained at once as to the intellectual rank of the sovereign and the tendencies of his reign, even from the most generalised accounts. The encyclopedias alone contain sufficient data to fix the extreme examples, those which deviate the widest from the doubtful or medium grades. For instance, if only three grades are employed, no detailed reading is needed to decide the intellectual grades for Frederick the Great or Peter the Great or as an antithesis for Charles II of Spain, or for the conditions during the reigns of these monarchs, and so on from the extreme deviations towards mediocrity, where the decision becomes more difficult. It is not necessary to go to specialised sources in cases like Frederick the Great and Peter the Great. No amount of subsequent reading would remove them from the plus grade for mentality. They might be shifted up or down within the grade, but such would not affect this research. The rules and reigns that deviate far from the main are fortunately easy to place. They are also fortunate the ones which affect the weight of the conditions most. Just as any weight on a balancing beam tends to dip the balance more, the farther out it is from the centre. If the grading of the ruler and the grading of the conditions cannot be satisfactorily depicted upon at once, then one naturally looks to more specialised sources. A considerable number will even then not be assignable with precision but these will affect the conclusions least, owing to their medium position in the scale, and as before stated, they are so placed as to weaken the conclusion to which I have come. The bibliographies printed in the appendix are made up of such works of reference as one sees mentioned at the close of the special articles in the standard English 
French, and German encyclopedias. These articles on the history of European countries are assigned articles written by well-known scholars and ought, therefore, to be valuable as a starting point, not only for their references, but also for their own statements of fact and judgment. Under the condensed summaries in the appendix, the letters A, B, C, D, etc., refer back by volume and page to the books that have been consulted. It may be noticed that some of the authorities are either out of date or notoriously partial. Some criticism might be directed against Dunham, Cox, or Motley, but I have not used these when their statements conflict with others. The great majority of the historians relied upon are modern and have the reputation of being impartial. Even if their impartiality be questioned, the general effect of their partialities will not lead me to a spurious conclusion unless they tend in one direction. This possibility will be reconsidered in the next chapter. The history which I am analysing concerns itself almost entirely with political or economic affairs, the side of history which may be called material, in contradistinction to the spiritual and intellectual. Although it is not possible, from one point of view, to separate these two factors in history, it is nevertheless easy, in practice, to place under the term material affairs all changes which have to do with certain stated features of national life. This research will note all the important statements on the following topics. Finances, Army, Navy, Commerce, Agriculture, Manufacture, Public Building, Territorial Changes, Condition of Law and Order, General Condition of the People as a Whole, Growth and Decline of Political Liberty, and the Diplomatic Position of the Nation, or its Prestige when viewed internationally. No attempt is made to include literary, educational, scientific, or artistic activities. The monarchs as patrons doubtless were not influential here, and also it would be interesting to compare eras of intellectual and artistic growth with political and material splendour, especially as many believe in the influence of the latter upon the development of higher culture. Such a research is already half-completed if the politico-economic tabulation which I here present be sufficiently correct. The question of political liberty and how far this is to be considered a material and how far a spiritual advantage, sometimes, though not often, enters in a way to cause perplexity. One frequently finds that under strong kings the country flourished in almost every way except that the people were oppressed. It is naturally difficult to weigh the value of political and personal liberty against prosperity in commercial, industrial, or other materialistic affairs. But the question which I am dealing with is, as far as possible, the economic or material side apart from the intellectual or ethical. Nearly all the statements in history are found to fall naturally into one or the other of the two classifications, materialistic or idealistic. It is just the same in dealing with the traits of an individual. Most aspects fall naturally to either the intellectual side or the moral side. Some few, like courage or perseverance, might well be thought to belong to both. It would not be a bad first approximation to divide in halves these middling attributes. In any event, a certain amount of individual judgment or personal equation is unavoidable, or is perhaps even advantageous in works of this sort. If I succeed in eliminating, by any methods, a great mass of preconceived notions and a priori dogmatisms, I shall not be disturbed if a few are found to remain. It is better to divide the intellectual, moral, and artistic conditions from the materialistic and correlate them separately with monarchs, or with whatever series one wishes than it is to mix all the national conditions together. Sometimes one set of conditions is minus and the other is plus, and so they would confuse each other and mask a correlation which might be truly present. 
For instance, the literary and scientific conditions are plus for the reign of Alfonso X of Castile, 1252-1284, while the material conditions are minus, both are highly associated with the strength and weakness of this monarch, who is scholarly, though unpractical. Even as it stands, there is, at times, a masking of the true correlation by putting all the material conditions together, as, for example, when the nation is successful in warfare, though declining internally, financially and otherwise, under the leadership of a warlike sovereign who is both brilliant and reckless. Therefore, as far as this source of error is concerned, the real parallelism is higher than I found it, and will be proved higher if the separate factors which fall under the general heading material conditions were each correlated separately with the peculiarities of the rulers. Sometimes the activities of one king were not realised during his own reign and became manifest only during that of his successor. Sometimes a country has been devastated by uncontrollable forces of nature, earthquakes, famines, or plagues. The general effect of all such chance happenings is, of course, to reduce still further the parallelisms which have been found in spite of all such happenings. There is one source of error which would work in the opposite direction, since it would illegitimately raise the correlation and so lead to an overestimate of the influence of monarchs, a consideration of its probable magnitude becomes of the first importance. This arises from the possibility that historians, especially the earlier historians, the chroniclers, and contemporary writers were wont to pangarize such kings as were fortunate or ruled when the conditions were favourable, at the same time unjustly condemned those who, though no fault of their own, suffered reverses or lost their crowns. The answering of this objection is a long story. Its importance will be constantly kept in mind, and the arguments reunited in chapter 17, where the whole question is gone into in detail. I need only say, for the present, that this source of error is shown to be slight when viewed in the bearing on the entirety of this research. It is not a general danger associated with the entire research, but is rather a special danger coexisting with certain specific periods. Fourteen national histories in all are analysed in this volume. Most of the accounts cover a period of about 500 years, and for some of the countries, England, France, Spain and Portugal, it's been found feasible to extend the study into earlier centuries, so that about 800 years can be given. Each account begins as early a date as the exigencies of the case permit, the special reasons for which are given at the beginning of each chapter, and closes with the reign approximating the French Revolution and the last part of the 18th century. Thus the interior and posterior date limits are systematically fixed. The territorial outlines include all the lands actually under the monarch in question, except occasionally when the territories are too much separated geographically to be treated as one country. These 14 countries cover the greater portion of the map of Europe as it is today. They are representatives of various races and climatic surroundings, they are in general the nations that have succeeded in maintaining their entities, being on the whole successful politically, having grown at the expense of surrounding areas. For this reason, more plus periods are found than would be the case if one studied the areas which, from the international political standpoint, have disintegrated and diminished in importance. The monarchs themselves are not representative of the stock of the nation over which they happen to rule. They are, from the standpoint of race, international breed, and with the exception of the House of Osman, which still rules in Turkey, an interrelated and biologically segregated group of persons of ultimate Germanic Scandinavian origin. 
in addition to the monarchs themselves the personal influence of prime ministers and other leading statesmen is naturally an important question and while i have not laboured with the same definiteness to correlate their personalities with national political and economic conditions i have nevertheless noted in each country these non-royal leaders and their entrances and exits historical distribution and presumable effects on national changes and i do not hesitate to suggest that they constitute a force second only in importance to the monarchs themselves these non-royal rulers appear upon the scene frequently during the minorities of sovereigns frequently also a far-seeing sovereign appoints a great statesman to a point of extreme leadership how frequent when and where is a question and this will be answered in the course of the text as well as summarized among the conclusions when a regency is in non-royal hands whether under a single regent or divided in form of a council i shall treat the period as if it were a period in which the monarchs were minus that is absent or weak if conditions are favourable or plus when the monarchical rule is absent it counts so much against the influence of monarchs if disaster and decline set in under non-royal rule then there is the amount of indication that monarchical rule was needed it is sometimes difficult to say just when the minority ends and when the debit and credit account should be taken out in the name of the young king himself i have frequently taken this at the date when the king reached the age of twenty-one but very often the youthful sovereign has been in actual and practical control of affairs and indeed making revolutionary changes much earlier than this age so that each case must be treated on its own merits in a way similar to a minority there is another form of government which lends important aid in unravelling complicated questions this is the existence of an interregnum these definite interludes have much of the experimental method about them and although some of the debatable questions of history are necessarily interwoven they are especially valuable because of the undebatable material which they contain an interregnum has a definite beginning and end and the royal authority being completely withdrawn this influence becomes for a time nil the amounts and kinds of progress made during minorities and interregna their distribution in place and time are among the most instructive of the tabulated facts an inquiry into the causes of the same serves to throw light on several other historological problems not directly involved many points like this have been taken advantage of in developing the conclusions the methods of histiometry differs so fundamentally from the older philosophies of history that it will be necessary to give considerable account both of the history of historical speculation and of the ideas and aims of the newer science end of section one